The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. A very special guest for episode 100, we have Garen Whited. Uh, Garen, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Glad to be here. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Um, so I want to find out all about you and your series, the Night Lord series. Um, I was just looking at that on Amazon. I think you probably have somewhere like 1,100 plus reviews over a four and a half star rating, which is amazing. Um, so tell me a little bit about yourself and what started this series and then i want to we'll go back and i'll go into your early childhood reading and all that but but what what made you write this series i feel like i need to be lying down on the couch well dr mark <laughs> you, but no okay um my idea to write this series came from uh some other vampire series that i read uh what happened was is how way back in the old days when they had brick and mortar bookstores you could actually walk into you remember Yep, you may I be too so. young for that, but yeah, but it still it was a while ago. I sat down because they used to have things called chairs inside the store where you didn't, you know, you actually got a hardback paper thing off of the shelf. And I got one of the latest ones off of the shelf and I sat down and I said, okay, well, hmm. I finished with the first chapter and thought some books are slow starters. No problem. Okay. So about a hundred pages in, I'm thinking there has to be a point to this. A little over halfway through, I was like, I will finish this. And then when I was done, I said, that was a mistake. I want those two hours of my life back. I could eat a pen and tomorrow produce a better book. Okay. So I went, wait, why couldn't I? All right, fine. I will. If this crap's getting published, okay, I'll write a book. So I did. And then it kind of took on a life of its own. And I've been writing it ever since. Now, what age was that? When when did you start that? Because I saw these books are how these books are very large, right? About thousand pages. About, about about a third of a million words. Wow. Yeah, the page count varies. Usually, it's around somewhere in the seven hundreds. Wow. Usually, um, so uh, I, I remember hitting the two million mark around book six, and we've got another. 700 pages or so and again another third of a million words they're big i mean they they run 30 some odd hours as an audiobook wow each so yeah it it, it takes it if you don't sleep you can get through all of them in 10 days <laughs> so when did you when did you write the first one when did you the the first one came out in what 2014 but when did you no 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 the first it? one came the first one came out in around 2006 i believe that's night oh, lord okay. sunset that's book 1 of the night lord series i'm on i'm i finished book 7 i'm working on book 8 now uh, and they usually come out nowadays about once a year but there was you know new author you know finding your feet that kind of thing the sequel took a couple of years before i finally got book 2 out because i i had a, I had a terrible case of sequel anxiety oh i did great on the first one the second one's gonna suck i know it is <laughs> and uh, apparently it didn't so okay well now i've got the third one i think i've got my i think i've hit my stride i've got this now let's do this you know and and since then it's just kept on going now when did you start did you have great reactions from the very start or did it take several books before you started getting your fan base yeah, strangely enough, people said, I like this. When's the next one? And of course, sequel anxiety going on. I'm not sure. I'm still working on it. 
<laughs> and you know that 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 went on for a while. It's a, it's, it's a stereotypical author thing. It's a work in progress. I should write. Yeah, yeah you know. So uh, I should work on that more. Oh, I should work on that more. And that that kept happening until finally people convinced me that yes, you did in fact write a good book. Mm-hmm. Please write another one, or we'll kill you. <laughs> oh, now that we've now now we're talking motivation. I got this. Okay, I'm on it. <laughs> right now. Do you have, do you know how many are going to be in the series? Like how far advanced did you plan or were you just going one book at a time? I, I know where the series is going and the ultimate demise fate outcome for the main character. It is told in first person. It is Eric, the main character's diary. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is what he's thinking and feeling and going through. Um, I know where he ends up, how the whole thing gets wrapped up and finished, uh, but how he gets there is um, not de- is not planned out in detail. Okay. There's, there's plenty of room for, oh, wait, yeah, we got to do that too. People will want to know. Because one of the drawbacks, I feel, to writing in first person, there are a lot of advantages too, mm-hmm. but one of the drawbacks to tell, storytelling in the first person is that there's a lot of stuff that happens that you don't get to see. Because if the character doesn't know it, Right. You kind of have to break out and say, okay, I'm going into third person for a moment to explain things to the reader. And sometimes that works well and sometimes it doesn't. I have done it a couple of times simply because it, it makes no sense if I don't mm-hmm. um, to, to the reader. But I don't like doing it, switching viewpoints like that in the middle of a book. Mm-hmm. So, How did you manage to do that on, on the times that you have? So. Well, since it's uh, since it's done in a diary format, it's generally a date, mm-hmm. you know, d- December 3rd, what planet he's on, what plane of existence or alternate reality or whatever it is, where he's at. OK, mm-hmm. uh, usually that happens. Usually it's just a, well, sometimes it's just a date, uh, but sometimes it's labeled interlude. Okay. OK, interlude the first interlude, the second to say this is not part of his actual diary and he doesn't know this. Okay. And then you get a third-person viewpoint of the two wizards who are going like, how are we going to kill him? I don't know. What happened the last time Bob got annihilated? What do you mean annihilated? A piece of armor exploded. A piece of armor? How did that happen? I don't know. There was some liquid oxygen involved. Don't talk to me. I don't know. <laughs> so uh, things like that. So you, you get to see some points of view that are that are not Eric's and go, oh, okay, that makes sense. Oh, is that how they see them? That's how that's working. Okay, now I see why they're doing the thing, even though Eric has not a clue. So now what what made you start writing in first person? Because I'd say that's probably, I, I love first person. I didn't discover it until maybe eight years ago. Uh, I, 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 blame, I blame Roger Zelazny. What did he write? The Chronicles of Amber. Uh, the nine, nine Princes in Amber, Guns of Avalon, the the Sign of the Unicorn, uh, the Corbin Chronicles from the from the same series of Chronicles of Amber, uh, Trumps of Doom, Prince of Chaos, all sorts of stuff. Okay, okay. The, the entire Amber series is like ten books, um, and uh, I, I I love Zelazny because he tends to mix genres pretty well. So that's that's a science fantasy. Wait, what do you mean science fantasy? Well, science fiction and fantasy. Well, how does that work? You ever seen an enchanted lightsaber? No. Do you want to? From what end? You know, and so on. See what I mean? Um, which happens a lot, I might add, in the, in the Night Lord series as well. They've, they've, people have asked me, what genre are you writing? Uh, epic fantasy? 
because there is a lot of epic fantasy in it. It's a good start. You'll figure it out as you go and so on. But he wrote the, the entire Chronicles of Amber in, in first person, Corwin's viewpoint. And there was a lot of mystery and intrigue, and you figured it out with Corwin. Mm-hmm. And in the Merlin series, again, it's from Merlin's point of view, you figure all this out with Merlin, and that was how it all unfolded. And since Eric was going to discover a lot of things as his adventure went on, rather than giving all the details and just going, well, this is what happens. The, it helps, I think, to be figuring it out with him. And then when you go back and read it again, you can go, uh-huh, he, he didn't know that yet. Okay, yeah. you know, And you see where it went there. So. Now, with your writing, do you ever take into consideration what is expected of the genres? Or do you just simply write the story that you want to write? And then if it fits, it fits. If it doesn't, it doesn't. You're just writing what comes to you. I have written things that are that are specifically a genre. Okay, uh, uh, there's a standalone novel, Luna, that uh, is purely science fiction, post-apocalyptic. It's very cheerful post-apocalyptic, but let's let's not get into that. Um, it, it actually actually Luna has a little bit of a relationship to the Night Lord series because Eric goes there and then leaves again. But that that he has very little. Imp- he doesn't show up in the actual book Luna. It's okay. just you see the setting appear in the in the Night Lord books, um, and that's straight up science fiction post-apocalyptic there's there's no psychics there's no magic there's just straight up this is how we this is how we do it it's kind of like the martian on the moon Mm -hmm. okay um dragon hunters is straight up fantasy period eric actually shows up there he makes a cameo they're all related he travels in alternate realities um but uh, that that's straight up fantasy period end of story knights dragons dragon winds eats the eats the pcs uh, it's also lit RPG, clearly. Uh, and, and then, you know, they don't let that stop them, of course, just because you've been eaten by a dragon. There's no reason to stop. Um, but uh, the Night Lord series, I think, is my favorite because he does have he, – he is a modern-day Connecticut Yankee-style individual who is working with not just science but magic and how they interrelate with all sorts of things. And I've, I've, I've tried to put it into a genre, and I, 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 I can't. So <laughs> I'm just I'm just writing whatever whatever seems appropriate at that point. How would this all mix? And it's complicated, mm-hmm. but fun, but lots of fun. I've been enjoying it. Apparently, the readers have too because I still have some. That's awesome. Now, <laughs> who who are your readers? Like, what who have you found? Like, uh, what are your demographics? Are they older uh, women? Are they younger kids? Is it is this YA? Is it too I, dark it, for that? Well, no, it's not. Usually it's not that terribly dark. I mean, Eric is kind of an optimist in most things where he's not a cynic. Um, but you you could it could be I mean, I wouldn't classify it as a as a YA novel, but I wouldn't hesitate to let a teen read it. Mm. You know, no big deal there. But my my fan base, appar- apparently the demographic is all over the age range. I mean, you know, did I, I, I've had some elderly people going, are you going to finish before I die kind of thing? And I'm like, that's a hell of a question. I have no idea. Please live, you know, and, and then I've had, you know, younger people just kind of like, this is awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, of course, then I've also had people go, you bastard. How could you do this to me? When's the next book? And I'm like, 
I know what scene you were thinking of and, and go on from there. See what I mean? So I, I, I can't say that it's really a specific demographic. It's just kind of broadly appealing. That's cool. I mean, I don't know why, but it is. Okay, great. <laughs> no, that, that's awesome. And I think, I think good writing does that. Uh, you know, people, people can appreciate it no matter what the age. Um, now, what were some of your early, like, what, what do you think led you to writing? Was it just this love for reading? And, and who were some of the authors that really inspired you early on? As with many writers, it started out by reading other writers. Absolutely, you're correct. Uh, Robert Heinlein, Roger Zelazny, uh, E.E. Doc Smith, the Lensman series, obviously. Uh, Stephen Bruce, a more modern writer with his Taltosh series. Uh, Jareg, and so on, set in, uh, set in the Jagarian Empire. Um, let's see, who else? Uh, well, let me glance at my shelf here for a section. Section uh, Heinlein, yes, David Weber, um, Roger Zelazny, Terry Pratchett's a big one, Neil Gaiman, uh, David Brin, uh, David Weber, uh, John Stakely, uh, Julian May, who else have we got here? Fred Saberhagen. Yeah, it's 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 a long list. <laughs> it really is. Were there? Uh, I think I saw. I was reading something about uh, Lord of the Rings. Oh God, yes, Tolkien. I don't even mention Tolkien because you can just assume that. I mean, that's just the fact. It there it is. People look at me funny when I'm sitting there reading Tolkien, and they go, "What you reading?" The Silmarillion. You can just sit there and read that. I never got through well, it. Yes. Well, yeah, of course. It's it's the history of Middle Earth. What do you want? I mean, I don't see the problem here. Mm. It's so dry. It's packed full of information. This is cool. And then they give me the horrified look and walk away quickly. And I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. Mm. <laughs> no, that's funny. Yeah, I don't think I, I I don't think I ever got through that. I loved Lord of the Rings. Um, but yeah, that one that one was a little bit dry for me. Um now how about do you watch a lot of fantasy as well and sci-fi? Is that what you're drawn to? Well, I, I do. I do enjoy watching them. I enjoyed The Martian, for example. That was fun. Mm -hmm. You know, again, the book was better, but that, that that's just kind of how that works. Um, I mean, checking my DVD collection, I've got Marvel and DC both on the shelf. Um, the the whole Aliens franchise, and of course, there's the Underworld franchise, which is mm -hmm. one's more much more heavily science fiction, one's much heavy, much more heavily mythological fantasy kind of stuff. You know, I mean, it again, I have fairly eclectic tastes. There, I've got weird movies, just you know, things most people have never heard of. But on the other hand, I've got things everybody's heard of. I mean, The Thing, John Carpenter classic horror film wonderful about the infectious shapeshifter thing gotta love that you know and i mean just there's no telling i mean just at any given moment what are you doing i'm watching i'm watching reruns of what star trek which one yep what do you mean yep what it's star trek <laughs> and it, that kind of thing so yeah um and how about writing how did you learn how to write did you did you take classes did you do any creative writing did just something that just came to you and taught yourself well i i was told that in order to be a writer what you needed to do was you needed to go to college get a degree in english uh possibly a master of possibly a master's of fine arts and study the craft of writing uh what most people who were telling me that failed to fail to take into consideration is that imitation is the sincerest, sincerest form of flattery. And the people I was flattering were 
Robert Heinlein, Roger Zelazny, Doc Smith, Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, and just a whole list of people that I had been studying since the age of five mm. because I read their stuff and then reread their stuff and then went, you know what? I should read that stuff again. Oh, wait, here's something new. I'll read that too and just kept expanding. So when it came time in, in school to say, I need you to write this. And I went, got it, teach. So I wrote it and I was done. And people were like, that was homework. Didn't seem like a big deal to me, you know, and went from there. Um, at, at which point, you know, now, now, we're, now we're into the situation of you write books? Yes. Really? How long? Novellas? <laughs> no. Novels. I, I write trilogies and I cram them all into one set of covers and say, here, that's a book. What do you mean? Well, 330,000 words is three novels. It's a trilogy. So technically, you could argue that I've got 21 books out there right now in the Night Lord series. It's just how do you chop each book up into three? So it doesn't work. You know, it's all one story. Technically, the whole thing is one big story. Don't start in book two. Start in book one. But still, you see the idea. I mean, I didn't study formally, but I was studying all my life. So it's not talent, it's practice. But my practice started out of, out of a passion for it and started early, even though I didn't realize that's what I was doing. That's awesome. Um, what, now, what do, you, what do you think you get out of writing? Um, and how long do you, is it something that you think you'll be doing the rest of your life? Or oh, God, oh, oh, absolutely. You betcha. I mean, writing is way cheaper than therapy. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You got it. Um, it, it, it doing doing a first person book, for example, um, there is a lot of me in Eric, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of me in all of the characters in some way or another. OK, um, I mean, Rayeth, Sir Rayeth, uh, is a very smart guy. I'm a reasonably intelligent guy and I could I could write him as hmm. I'm going to be clever now because, well, I, I'm writing this. I can pretend to be clever. It's not a problem. Then you've got, you know, very, uh, I'm, I'm going to veer into politics for a second. Eric is a cynic as far as politicians are concerned. He believes that they're all corrupt. Me too. Yeah. You, you, you can't trust a politician because they wanted power. Wait, that doesn't sound good. If you want to be in charge, now he will now I will acknowledge that some people want to be in charge because they go, I see what needs to be done. The rest of you are being idiots. I'm going to be in charge so I can do it. Mm -hmm. And then I can go home. Okay, you're you're doing this out of a sense of responsibility because okay, I, I get that. I have that feeling myself on occasion. If you're not going to do it right, I'm going to do it. Mm, you know, and so on. Eric doesn't believe that that actually happens. But I do. On the other hand, yes, it is easy to see why he has that kind of attitude. It's it, We're not the same person, but there are similarities all the time. And there's always something of the author in every character in the book. Mm -hmm. For sure. No, I just, I, I'm working on a traumatic brain injury, a nonfiction book. And right now, mm -hmm. one of the sections is on writing and how powerful it can be as a therapy, whether yep. it's fiction, nonfiction, journaling, or whatever. But uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. And like I say, it's cheaper than therapy. And mm -hmm. and best of all, since people seem to like it, they'll actually feed me, which is kind of important as a writer. <laughs> so 
you know, it, 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 that's, that's my job. It's what I do now. So, yeah, no, I love it. Um, all right. So you are giving us one of your short stories today too, right? Yes, that's correct. It's called, uh, the, the real title is An Arabian Night. It's patterned after the Arabian uh, Thousand and One Nights. Uh, and the, uh, the subtitle is Nazin's Dream. Nazin's Dream. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Now, is this tied to anything else you've written or is this just completely standalone? It is, it is completely standalone on its own in much the same way Luna is a standalone all by itself. You read the book, you're done with the book, fine, no problem. It doesn't drag you into the other rest of the story to understand what's going on. Uh, but uh, Luna, as an example, uh, that, that alternate reality where we, we destroy the world and humans have to live on the moon and survive there and have to cope and all that kind of thing. Eric shows up in that world in the Night Lord books and goes, there's nobody on the planet. They're all on the moon. Why are they all on the moon? I don't get it. Okay, because it's an alternate reality. He has no idea what the history of the place is. He doesn't know how it got to this point. But wait, someone who's also read Luna will go, wait a minute. That seems oddly familiar somehow. And, and again, Luna stands by itself. But it has some relation to the, thus Nazan's dream stands by itself. It's a perfectly decent story all by its lonesome. But Eric may wander through an environment that the keen-eyed reader will go, isn't that the same place where that guy Nazan found the bottle with the genie and the thing? <laughs> Wait a second. Flip back to the short story. That seems vaguely familiar and, and go from there. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, okay. I think it's a wonderful bonus for the reader. Um, yeah, I, I find they love that. Um, now, and for someone that hears this, that wants to check out your writing, would you recommend book one in Night Lord first, or would you oh have God, a oh, oh, God, yes. Yes. You can treat the series as one long book. Okay. And, but, yeah. and then do Luna at the end of it, or would you? Uh, you, you can start with Luna. You can start with Dragon Hunters. Okay. Either of the, any of those will work. Um, I will point out, however, that Dragon Hunters, uh, has a chapter or two where Eric is there doing his thing. He's the mysterious stranger, okay? And then he leaves. I mean, that's it. He's done his job. He's sowed chaos and caused confusion and left. Um, but in the Night Lord series, that chapter is told again from Eric's point of view. Oh, that's cool. So it's like, hey, I read that. I know where this is going and went from there. What was Eric thinking? Read the Night Lord book. You know, what, what What happened and how did it go from a more third-person perspective? Read Dragon Hunters. I mean, you don't have to read either of them, but start anywhere you want, really. Okay. Yeah, except except the Night Lord series. Start with book one. Definitely start with book one. <laughs> somebody, keeps, somebody was asking me for a synopsis at the beginning of each of the <laughs> – oh, I will get to that someday. Yeah. Um, there, there's, also, uh, there's also a bunch of free stuff on the website, uh, mm -hmm. garenwhited.com. Uh, short stories miscellaneous stuff chapters that didn't make it into the books uh there's a chapter where eric has to deal with some giant ants in a post-apocalyptic setting and that's in the night lord series he just does it 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 happened end of story but it was a whole chapter or so on what happened in having to deal with it in the night lord books all he ever says is i don't want to talk about it the short story on the website that's why he doesn't want to talk about it Oh, okay. See what I mean? So it wasn't vital to the plot, and the book was already really long. So, okay, it's a bonus chapter. It's just sitting there. Several of those lying around. So That's awesome. And that's all on your website? Garen all on the website, garenwhited.com. Not a problem there. 
Uh, they're fr they're free. Just you know, you have to you have to click the click the button to get past like the paywall. It keeps people from like swiping them and stuff. I I'm not a web designer. I don't know how this works. Exactly. <laughs> but but it is free. It doesn't ask for a credit card. You don't have to pay anything. Just click awesome. through. Click through and go on your way. Well, very cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on here and uh, talking about the series. Delighted uh, to be here. Yeah, I you're my you're my new hero. I, if I could write that many words, I would be thrilled. Uh, so that, that's amazing. Um, all right, so we will go out on your story. Nazin's dream. Nazin's dream. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us, and we will go out on this story, and I will talk to you later. Wonderful. Take all care. Right. An Arabian Night, Nazin's Dream, by Garen Whited. Read by Garen Whited. Praise be to Allah, the merciful and compassionate, in the daylight hours when men move abroad in the world, and in the hours of dawn and dusk, when men rise to their labors and settle to rest, and most especially in the hours of the night, when the world of men is wrapped in darkness, and strange things wander in the land of dreams. Now come with me to a time that never was, a place that has never been, and hear a tale of that which never happened in this world. In the reign of the Sultan, Azir ibn Fahed ibn Rashad ibn Tirat ibn Ramed, may his name be praised forever, there was a poet and philosopher of some small accomplishment living in the city of Baghdad. Like all poets, his heart was a trifle wilder than those of other men, his spirit quicker kindling in the fires of the passions, his wits sharper than was strictly good for him. His name was Nazin. So it happens that in the eighteenth year of the Sultan's reign, Nazin had the misfortune to fall in love. Many are those who might think it odd love should be considered a misfortune. Yet much has been written about the perils and catastrophe of that most singular of emotions. Of course, this is not always so much a disaster as many have made it out to be. Nevertheless, it was calamitous in the extreme for Nazan, for the woman to whom his heart fled was Jazira Shada, a courtesan of great beauty and skill. His affections were returned in large measure, and many idle days did they pass in one another's company. Freely flowed the wine, and many were the delicacies placed between lovers' lips. Musicians played bright songs that the two might dance, or soft songs when the lovers wished to rest. Pleasures of the flesh ran riot in the light of the setting sun and the waxing moon, ceasing only as the sun peeped over the edge of the world once more, where each would lie spent in the arms of the other. In this manner did Nazan and Jazira spend their days. But Nazan was not the sultan, and his worldly wealth was not great. In very few weeks his resources were depleted, the wine ceased to flow, the songs no longer played, and Jazira, Jazira took herself to more profitable clientele, leaving Nazan to consider the folly of all flesh and the questionable wisdom of the heart. In mere days did his debts come to haunt him. Creditors came to him to claim the money they provided for Nazan and his lover to have such luxuries surround them. When Nazan gave them what little he possessed of gold, of silver, even of copper, thereafter were the many fine things of Nazan's house sold to appease them. Soft couches and elegant tables, plates of porcelain and utensils of silver, 
also the fine hangings of both wall and window were stripped and sold even his very house itself with its small garden and toy fountain were taken from him and given over to those to whom he had so indebted himself for the sake of his lover's delight nazin even surrendered his robes from his very body to appease the ravenous money-lenders and soon wore only cast-off garments in which none could find value with the loss of both fortune and reputation his stories and poems and songs found no favor worse those formerly accounted as the poet's friends once so free with money wine and merriment turned away from nazin and desired his company no more the people who had praised him so during his prosperous years now heard not his pleas for aid when nazin asked for aid of those he once accounted his friends many were those who set their servants upon him to beat nazin for the amusement of their guests others loosed their dogs upon him to drive the new beggar away even so the greatest misery of them all was the emptiness inside nazin's breast for his poet's heart beat only for his love of jazeera which was great and knew no relenting the lack of her for whom his heart yearned was as a great yawning gulf always with him and his days were filled with the constant struggle to not be drawn in but alas at night when he lay upon the sun-warmed stones of the street he fell again into the deep and blackened emptiness which haunted his steps in dreaming he knew more keenly the loss of his heart and soul only to weep and thrash in sleep like a man possessed at last unable to bear his condition he kept what little money he begged of passers-by going without food for two days that he might offer those pitiful coins to an apothecary for a potion which might ease his miserable state he took himself to the souk the marketplace and sought out a man who might succor him with gentle oblivion even as nazin entered this place of business the apothecary did come near to commanding him hence nazin's gentle pleas were not the words of a common beggar however and so stayed the apothecary's wrath for long enough that nazin might make his request to craft such a potion is contrary to the law of the sultan the apothecary said eyeing nazin with distaste and the most deadly compound i may make under the law is also of great price for its true purpose be off with you before i summon a warden to kick you from this shop yea even from the streets of the city of jewels thrice noble merchant i am now but a humble beggar replied nazan what little of fortune i possess i hold here in my hand to offer you i have no home no fine clothes nor even food for an empty belly my body is stiff from sleeping on stones my bones ache from the cuffs and kicks of all respectable citizens i am spat upon and turned out of every place to me these things which would torment men of breeding or of station are the veriest trifles not even worthy of consideration for the truest pain dwells like a beast of ice within the empty place where once my heart beat and throbbed it is gone from me gone with her and i have neither life nor breath remaining all i ask is this poor shell of skin be granted leave to rest from its labor of housing a dead spirit that the tenant of this house of flesh 
might seek oblivion. I ask you, as a man who knows the value of a heart, to look on these poor coins not as a few pieces of copper, but as everything of value left in what was once a man. Surely you were once a poet, replied the astounded apothecary, for no beggar ever born could plead so, and I am moved by your words. For the files and filters I concoct I have been offered vast sums. Once a great lord gave me a purse of gems for a single night of dreams, and a queen of a distant land once heaped silver upon me and kissed my brow in thanks for a remedy. But never before, in all the years I have practiced my art, has a man offered me everything he has. Very well. Give me the coins and return in a week. You shall have your vial of forgetful dreams and peace, if you can hold your silence in this matter until then, for your silence is assured thereafter. Nazan agreed with all fervor, and returned forthwith to begging for his bread upon the streets. In due course he returned, and collected a small stoppered vial. As he did so, the apothecary offered him one last word. As foolish as it may seem to offer a caution to a man who seeks to depart the world, yet do I warn thee, said the apothecary, this is very little, but very potent. A man might pay dearly for even a taste. It brings dreams of great clarity and strength, unlike those dreamt by even the greatest and most powerful of dreamers. It is not meant to take life. Indeed, what little you have should bring no lasting harm to a man both strong and healthy. But if consumed all at once by a man weakened and near death, it will surely prove fatal. If such be your earnest desire, then wait to drink of it until you are at the end of your strength, and thus shall your passing be swift and pleasant. Nazan, accepting the vial of dreams and death, thanked the apothecary, and set forth from the city, walking into the desert. For three days and nights he traveled, without food or water, beneath a merciless sky of hot blue glass and a sun of hammered brass. When his scorched feet and fevered brow came to the shadows amid the ruins of a fallen temple, he threw himself down beside a broken wall, and there rested. Shaking and weak, almost delirious from the heat, thirst, and hunger, he unstoppered the vial and drank down the contents at a single gulp. Nazan fell back upon the sands as though struck dead, crashed through the ancient fragile wood beneath the cloaking layer of sand, and plunged into darkness. Nazan awoke in a hot, dry cave. He was covered in dust and thirsty beyond even the reckoning of nightmare, while his body ached from head to toe as though pummeled cool light flowed like silver honey over him, spilling down from the half-lidded eye of the moon, and gave him the wherewithal to see. He groaned and closed his eyes. His heart wept in the deepest cavern of despair, while his desiccated flesh had no tears to shed. He cursed the apothecary and his potion for their fault, cursed the life which hung so tenaciously to his flesh. For hours did Nazan lay amid the sand and dust of the cave, trying in vain to weep, until the moonlight crept across the floor and touched a bright glimmer in the darkness. The edge of light drew a gleaming crescent along the half-buried form of a bottle. Nazan, the man, neither knew nor cared. The flesh which housed his spirit, however, was not of a mind to die, and, in the way of flesh, did as it pleased when the will of man could not command it otherwise. Thus did Nazan crawl to the bottle and draw it from the sand, 
pulled the stopper, and tilted up to his dry, cracked lips. Nothing issued therefrom, not even dust, and he threw the bottle from himself with all the strength remaining in his weakened frame. Somewhere in the darkness the sound of shattering was loud. Nazin fell to the dust again, the last of his strength fled, and slipped down into a darkness of the spirit. His next waking was more pleasant. The smell of water and green things drew him up from the black wells of despair by tickling the places in the poet's soul which know only curiosity and wonder. He opened his eyes and realized his body knew neither pain nor thirst. He lay within a silken sheet, hung between two great palms, swinging gently in the shade by a rippling pond. A great feathered fan bobbed up and down beside him, wafting a cooling breeze over his form. Cloth, scented with jasmine and oil of roses, lay upon his brow. "'Aha!' boomed a huge, inhuman voice. "'I see my benefactor has awakened!' Nazin sat up slowly, careful not to upset himself from his strange resting-place. He beheld a tower of light and smokeless flame. It whirled as a storm whirls, yet swept nothing into it. Even as Nazin gazed upon this wonder, it changed, taking on a new form, an overwhelming creature, manlike in shape, but huge. It towered nine feet tall and at least three feet wide. Arms as big around as kegs and banded with golden ornaments folded themselves across a chest as dark and hard as though carved from the teakwood tree. It wore a vest upon its body, and trousers gathered at waist and ankles. Its wrists bore the marks of having worn manacles, and its shaven head was bare. Its eyes gazed upon Nazan, both merry and bright, and Nazan could not meet them for more than a moment. "'Well met, descendant of Adam,' boomed this apparition. Nazin stared for a long moment, torn between his fear and his hunger for the unknown. But where there is no desire to live, there is little enough to fear. "'I am Nazin,' he offered, and nearly tumbled from his perch as he moved to stand. "'Forgive me, but I do not recall how I have been your benefactor. Indeed, I am unable to aid even myself. Perhaps you have mistaken me for some other.' "'I think not,' declared the giant. While the law requires that whomsoever hold the vessel of a jinn is the master of the jinn, it says nothing of those who might break the vessel and free the one so trapped. You did so when you flung aside my bottle to shatter it against unyielding stone. Well is it you have done so, very well indeed, for now you have a mighty servant and ally who will repay a debt instead of a mighty slave to only obey your orders. I have no need of a servant, nor a slave, Nazan replied, for I am a beggar and a fool, and a lost fool at that. Go your way in peace, noble Jinn, for what I most desire is beyond any power of this world, unless you may grant me the sleep of death, and so make my passing out of this world and into the next a pleasant one. As Nazan spoke, the Jinn stared at him as one stares at a man gone mad. What is this? it rumbled. A mortal man with a desire in his heart, and the aid of a jinn at his command? Yet he will not seek it? What is this desire of which you speak that leaves you so unmanned? I love, and am not loved, Nazan replied, simply. Has the might of the race of the jinn grown so great they can grant love as the wish of their masters? Or has the wisdom of thy race encompassed any cure for this malady? The jinn's expression of disbelief and irritation diminished and softened, becoming one of pity. 
"'It is a wise man who speaks to me,' it said quietly, "'and one more terribly accursed than ever was I. "'A thousand years did I remain chained to that now shattered vessel, "'yet it may seem a short while to you if we should measure it in miseries. "'Nonetheless, child of Adam, if you will permit me, "'I will show you the might of the djinn you so doubt, "'and bend every effort to shatter your bonds, even as you shattered mine.' for I owe you a debt of lifetime's length. Accursed shall I be if I cannot repay it. Nazin shrugged as the djinn spoke. It is one to me whether I live or die, he said. What matters it to me if you unfold the mountains into palaces or plains, or turn the seas to gold or wine? Do as you will. With those words, the djinn took Nazin in its arms and carried him as one carries a babe. With a leap, they were aloft, catapulted almost to the very firmament. The lower half of the djinn became a whirlwind, and they shot across the vault of the heavens as quickly as the shooting stars. Thus did they come to a great palace, ringed about with pools and gardens, and there settled to the earth once more. The djinn set Nazan down and walked with him in the gardens, which were filled with many exotic flowers and strange fruits. "'Taste of the fruits of the garden,' the djinn commanded." Nazin plucked a fruit and ate it. Now, said the djinn, confidently, was it not the sweetest and most wonderful thing you have ever tasted? The food of your garden is more sweet than wine or honey, Nazin replied, but it is bitter ashes beside the taste of a lover's lips. This is but a single taste of the pleasures which await you. Enter now into the palace of a thousand and one delights. There we shall find something to turn your despair into joy. Nezin walked with the djinn and entered the palace. There were, indeed, a thousand delights, from the flesh of concubines to the intricate movements of the heavens. From all places and things were joys drawn, whether they be from the basest passions or the most noble thoughts. Words of poetry and song, like spun gold and silver, were given to Nazin to know. The softest and finest of clothes were his to wear. The food and drink of a thousand shores were placed between his lips to nourish his body. For a thousand and one days the djinn sought time and time again to fill the dark and empty place in Nazan's spirit, always to no avail. Much did this trouble the djinn, for those of its race are not accustomed to failure. They are proud, and justly so, for great is their power. Moreover, the djinn do not abandon debts, whether of honor or of revenge, for any reason. Yet the debt to Nazan seemed impossible to repay. Had it chosen to take a form with hair upon its head, the djinn would surely have torn it out by the roots. At last it admitted it could not solve this dilemma alone. Almost unheard of as this may be for any djinn, only an irredeemable debt of honor could overcome the overwhelming pride of their kind. This problem was impossible. The djinn left Nazan in the care of those servants within the palace and departed. It flew across the width of all the earth, until it came to the palace of the air, home of the sultan of all jinn, set high on the mountains near the middle of the world. Here it landed and sought the others of its kind who dwelled there. It met with them, questioned many at length, fought much on all that they knew or guessed, and it departed. Nazan, said the jinn, when it returned, I have pondered long on this puzzle of your heart, and I have found no solution. It requires no solution, Nazan said softly. It is the way of things. I love, yet am not loved. There is no solution under heaven, 
and to think otherwise is folly. Perhaps, the djinn replied, but I am djinn, and we may indulge in folly if we choose. Now, tell me all you know of love. The djinn are immortal, so we know little enough of this mortal thing. We know the passions well, for we are beings of fire and air, but we are not made to love. I cannot conquer this which I do not understand, so you, prisoner of love's chains, must explain your prison to me. How can I explain it? Nazan asked. If you do not know it, you cannot be told. It can only be experienced, like the feel of sunshine on one's face. It cannot be explained, as can the mathematics of the stars, or the way the ink must form the letters upon the page. Say not such things, commanded the djinn, for long have I labored, and now I know much of you, Nazin of Baghdad, and of what has brought you to this pass. You were a poet, Nazin ibn Khalad, and you will make me understand this human thing you call love. I have spoken. Now begin. So Nazin the poet spoke to the djinn of love. For two days and nights Nazan spoke, in a voice which echoed with unbridled rage, and trembled with bottomless sadness, sang with delight at the very limits of what flesh might endure, whispered with gentleness known only to those who entwine in the small hours of the night. At the end of the second night Nazan slept the sleep of exhaustion, and the djinn thought long and hard upon the words of the poet. When it had thought, it summoned ink and paper, and awaited Nazan's awakening. When Nazan's eyes opened, it touched Nazan on the head with one giant finger. "'Write,' the djinn commanded. "'Write what you know or guess of love, that I may show your words to others, whose wisdom is greater than my own.' So Nazan wrote. He wrote for day after day, week after week, in prose, poetry, and song. What else could he have done?' He was gripped by the power of the djinn's command, and it ignited a fever of words demanding to be set free. They flowed in a torrent upon the parchment as the poet's soul wept tears of ink, bled its letters upon the page. The djinn read as quickly as Nazan wrote, and thought more quickly still. The djinn are not born of man and woman, male and female. They are creatures of smokeless flame, formed of fire and air, without a true form, taking whatever shape best pleases them sexless, genderless. They take whatever form they wish to experience the passions of the flesh. They do not understand the strange attraction of man to woman and woman to man. Something about it has always been, perhaps always will be, elusive. And yet the djinn of Nazan believed that while it was elusive, it should not be unattainable. This thing seemed a madness. It has always seemed a madness, but a madness not without method, nor without, perhaps, some measure of merit. At last, the poet's words ran dry. Empty of all things, he was taken to the garden and placed beside a fountain, there to lie in enchanted sleep until it suited the pleasure of the djinn to awaken him. To and fro upon the face of the earth did the djinn roam, seeking after knowledge, but the full powers of an unchained djinn did it pry into the mysteries of the heart to learn and grow wise in the ways of it. Its quest gave it wisdom, and with wisdom came realization. Nazan was right. Love could not be explained and studied, learned. It could only be experienced, like the feel of rain or the scent of roses. 
At length, frustrated and nearing the end of its wits, the jinn sought out the final prize of its quest for understanding, Jazira Shada, the woman whom Nazin loved. Look upon this man, bade the jinn. See him sleeping there, enchanted into slumber by my power. Tell me of him. Jazira, frightened though she was by her sudden removal from the arms of her latest lover, and indeed from the entire city, as well as frightened by the power of the jinn, answered it by saying, He is just a man, and a foolish one. I remember him only little, for his wealth was small, and my time with him was short. He knows nothing but the feelings of his heart, for he is a poet. He cares nothing for the things of value in the world. And what are these things of value? rumbled the jinn, eyes like flames. Tell me, for I would hear of these things you find pleasing. Gold, of course, answered Jazeera. She smiled at the jinn and licked her lips in the fashion men found most pleasing. Gold and jewels are the gifts of greatest value, and often do men give of them to one with beauty, such as mine, and with the skills to pleasure their flesh and tickle their vanity. Then shall we make a bargain? asked the jinn. Golden jewels for love. I shall give you wealth beyond measure, wealth so great you can never spend it all, even if you were to labor mightily day by day and spare no time nor thought for the pleasures of life. But in return, you will give to this man your heart and love him. Love him? Jazeera asked. Love is a weakness only to be used against men who have the things I desire. It is often the only way to handle the wealthy, or the powerful, or the strong, for all men fall prey to it and crumble when it strikes. And yet, she continued, for the price you offer, I will stay with him and pleasure him. Men are fools and easily deceived. I will make him believe he is loved, if such is your wish, in exchange for your gold and your jewels. The jinn laughed aloud, and it seemed the thunder of the skies found a home within its throat. Jazeera's eyes widened, and she shrank back from the mighty figure's mirth. For at last, the jinn had found a solution, a cure for the incurable. Gold and jewels, yes, roared the jinn. Gold you shall have in abundance, a palace of it, and jewels larger than your arms can encircle, it declared. Gems brighter than the noonday sun shall illuminate your palace. Will that serve you well as the greatest things upon the earth? Yes, Jazeera shouted, greed overcoming terror. Yes, yes, please. Then it is so, declared the jinn, and the great hands clapped together with a sound like the breaking of the world. In that instant, Jazeera found herself within a palace of solid gold, cast out of a single mold. The walls, floors, and ceilings shone with the rich luster of the most precious of metals, and the windows, the rays of the sun shone through them and through the gleams of countless facets through the air, for each window, although larger than Jazeera herself, was filled with a single gargantuan gem, diamond and emerald, ruby and sapphire, topaz and opal, all set within the walls as a jeweler might set one of their smaller brethren in a pendant. The jinn held up the tiny castle, no larger than a woman's fist, and peered within. The tiny figure of the ecstatic Jazeera was easily visible as she ran through the golden palace. Such are the greatest of all things, said the jinn softly. Enjoy them, treasure them, 
for you shall have these and no others for all the years of your life. I have spoken. The djinn set the toy palace down in a sunny place, tiny gems winking in the light, and sought out the poet once more. Nazan, it said softly, my kind know nothing of love, but we know much of honor and of debts. Your words are unlike any of men before you, for the misery of your kind has finally found a voice. Yet I have not freed you from your prison, even though you freed me from mine. Never have we desired to know anything of this affliction you claim as the most sublime of all things. Yet your words move me to curiosity, and my honor demands action. So sleep, poet and storyteller, sleep until the rains come and wake you, then return home. The miracle of desert rain fell upon the sleeping poet for some time before he woke. He lifted the soaked rags of his shirt and squeezed water from them, then spread them to gather the rain again. He did so over and over until his thirst was slaked, and he could stand without fainting, and only then did the rain stop. The ruined temple lay all about him, as it had when he laid himself down to die, with great weariness and greater sadness. Nazin turned his feet toward the city once more. The potion had drawn him into the depths of dreams, but he had surfaced from the depths, despite his desire to sink therein and be no more. And such strange dreams, of gin and a garden and a palace and love. Nazin wept as he walked and returned to the city and to his begging. For six days he begged for his bread on the streets and received both charity and cruelty, as is the lot of a beggar. On the seventh day, as he begged alms from a noble gentleman, he was struck upon the head and dazed. People passed about him as he lay upon the street, stepping around and over him, until someone in a litter called to the bearers to halt. Nazan was lifted and moved, and he muttered as his head spun and whirled. Movement made him even more dizzy, and he lapsed into silence. When his senses returned to him, he lay upon a low couch. A great feathered fan blew a gentle breeze to cool him, and a cloth was on his brow scented of jasmine and oil of roses. Jin, he muttered, opening his eyes. Nazan, asked a soft voice. He turned his gaze to behold Jazeera. Jazeera, he said, clasping his hands before his breast in a gesture of respect. Rest now, my Nazan, she said, and kissed his cheek. Tomorrow, when you are stronger, we will walk in my garden, and we will speak of many things. For now, eat and drink, grow strong, for I do not wish to lose you again. She called for watered wine and delicious foods, which she gave to him, sip by sip and mouthful by mouthful, with her own soft hands. Nazin grew strong again under her care, for she looked upon him with eyes neither unkind nor displeased. With every day she lavished upon him greater and greater affection, until the poet's heart was as warm as a lover's touch, as filled as a mother's womb. They walked together in the privacy of her garden and her hand stole into his. My Nazan, she said, for she would call him nothing else. Will you stay with me and write your poems and stories and songs? If it is your desire, he said, I will. It is my desire, she replied, for long have I wished to hear your voice and read your words once more, more to feel your touch upon me and your breath upon my lips. 
then these things shall be yours, for they are all I have, Nazan replied, and with them all the love they may bear to you. I am pleased, and will give you whatever love may be within me to give, my Nazan, for it is yours and no other's. I have spoken. For threescore years and ten did Nazan and Jazeera live within her house, and Jazeera loved him, him and no other, much to the dismay of all whom she had once welcomed as patrons, guests, and clients. To him she gave all her worldly wealth, just as Nazan gave to her all the treasures of his heart. In so giving, each enriched the other, and they were together at every moment of day and night. Nazan wrote his poems and sang his songs for her, and they lived together in the manner of man and wife, where once each had lived alone. The poetry of Nazan found great favor in these latter days, and many said he had been vouchsafed a vision. Others claimed he had finally found love, and so his poet's heart wrote only what it knew. Others spoke scornfully, claiming Nazan could write only of love, but of them we do not speak out of pity, for those who do not know love's greatness cannot be expected to understand. Whatever the case, Nazan and Jazeera lived in his house together, sang together, walked in his gardens together, and slept together. Nazan loved her all their years upon the earth. Of course, all men pass away, for the flesh of men is made of earth and water, and when life departs, the flesh dries into the dust once more. Nazan, now of great age, laid himself down with Jazeera and slept. From this sleep he did not awaken, but gave to her his last breath, as he had given all else he once had or was, releasing it into her care while encircled in his lover's arms. In the days that followed, the house of Nazan was divided in many ways, for there was no heir to the lovers. For all their long lives and long loving, no children were born to them. Thus, according to the will of Nazan, everything was sold for whatever it would bring, and the money divided among the beggars of the street. This was done, for the instructions he had written were very clear and witnessed by many. Yet this was his second desire, for the first rule of his will was all things should pass to Jazeera, ensuring she would be wealthy all the remaining days of her life. This could not be done, however. For in all the places men might search, two treasures of the house of Nazan were not to be found. The first, and the one that caused the most confusion, was Jazeera herself. She vanished on the very night Nazan died, gone like a puff of smoke upon the whirlwind, or the last ray of light at sunset. It was said, by some, she crumbled to dust when the life of Nazan fled. Others say she followed his soul to the gates of paradise, so strong was her devotion. Only Jazeera herself knew the truth of her vanishment, and she was nowhere to be found. The second missing thing was hardly even noticed. It was a minor treasure, barely the size of a woman's fist, but it graced a sunlit place upon the mantel in the house of Nazan from the day of his return to the day of his departure. Perhaps it shares the fate of Jazeera herself, wherever she is for no one has ever yet discovered what became of that toy palace bedecked with bright, tiny gems. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.